Hey everyone, so while this could essentially be its own standalone episode, the essence of this story can only truly be captured if you listen to both parts. So if you haven't listened to the episode before this titled Ashley Ellerin, I would stop listening right now and go listen to that one first so you can get a full picture of the reign of terror described in this two-part series. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. The methodical and systematic slaughter of women. Gargiulo's plan to kill was to first identify a target who lived near him, acquaint himself with that victim, and her habits and routines, and then watch, shadow, stalk, and hunt down the victims relentlessly as part of his plan to kill. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. How are we feeling, guys? We're feeling great. We're feeling wonderful. It's a good night. Billy's wearing an, another fancy shirt. So is October the year of fancy shirts for you? No. Month? That would be or month. Whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, no, October's... Uh, I've been doing T-shirt-tober. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. So I did T-shirt-tober. But uh, no, this is this is a Halloween-themed shirt. And it's, you're just Creepy a little Co. bit late. Yeah. But I'm just a little bit late. Exactly. But Halloween is forever in your mind. Yes, exactly. Halloween is every day for me. It is every day for you. Um, I just want to let everybody know about my life hack that Billy didn't know about today. I did not. If you guys have a warm beer, you can wrap it in wet paper towel and put it in the freezer and it gets cold. Well, for how long though? How long did it take? A couple minutes. It works also for Prosecco or champagne or a white wine or a bottle of, uh, you know, tequila if you want to do any, Patron, any like, kind of spirit that you yeah. decide mm-hmm. it can work for mm-hmm. but just set a timer so you don't forget and then it yeah, explodes exactly. all over your lasagna yeah. or whatever you have in there <laughs> <laughs> because when we open up alexis's it's like her her freezer is just filled Stacked with lasagna lasagnas. it's just so much lasagna if lasagna no, on I, lasagna i just literally have daily harvest cups in there. <laughs> there's a lot of daily harvest cups in i there. do too all right <sighs> billy what day is it today you know what we can all feel this. Marooned without a compass day. What? Yes. Marooned. Do you f- ever feel that? You're marooned without a compass. Actually, no. No. You've never felt like that before. No. Like emotionally? Yes. I'm pretty sure that's what they're saying. No. It's um, also, all right, fine. It's also <laughs> National Nachos Day. I know. The, it's another one of these. Why? That's a very exciting one. Na- National Nachos Day? Yeah. yeah. National Nachos Day. Also, right. National Saxophone Day. So imagine some Kenny G coming no, in. No, he plays the clarinet. No, he plays he, the alto sax. Yeah. But it's not, it's it like a like, long, yes. it looks like a clarinet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kenny G like comes in. Yes. He's playing a sax this no, time. No, Bill Clinton. No. Bill Clinton Kenny plays G. a real sax. Or Clarence Clemens. Let's just go there. Oh my... Well, you guys ruined it. Kenny J plays the little flute saxophone. But it's still a saxophone. Alto. Still has saxophone in the instrument name. So still goes along with National Saxophone Day. I'm going with Maroon without a compass day because that's how I feel I'm right now. I'm going with Nachos <laughs> Day. 
All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In 2001, Ashley Ellerin was found dead in her Hollywood apartment. Police interviewed two men that she was casually dating, her landlord Mark and a budding actor named Ashton Kutcher. Both of the men admitted to having been at Ashley's apartment that very night. Mark even admitted to having been intimate with Ashley on the evening she was murdered. But as police were running down leads, they learned of a strange character in the neighborhood who was making people uncomfortable. The man... Mike the Furnace Guy, who would later be identified as Mike Gar-Julo. And while the police had zeroed in on him, a slew of some inexcusable decisions made by political powers that be across the country would essentially kill the investigation altogether, essentially sabotaging the LAPD's ability to apprehend the man they believed to be responsible. We left off on our last episode with the Cook County, Illinois Police Department calling upon the LAPD to help them in tracking down a man they suspected for a murder in 1993, Mike Gargiulo, who they wanted to take a DNA sample from to see if he was connected to the murder of his best friend's little sister, Trisha Panaccio. These cases would take years to reconcile, and in the meantime, Ashley's childhood best friend in our first degree, Carolyn Murnick, had become a journalist and began work on The Hot One a book about her friendship with Ashley and her quest for answers about her killer. Now, and keep in mind that while police like Gorgiulo for Ashley's murder, Ashley's family and friends who were spread across the country were still left to speculate as to what happened. Once Mike Gargiulo was on police radar, they needed to find out everything that they could about him. They learned that he was born on February 15, 1976, and raised in the suburbs of Glenview, Illinois. And this was about 20 miles north of Chicago. He played baseball in high school, and people he grew up with recalled him angering pretty quickly. And he lived in the kind of neighborhood where everybody was friends with everybody. One of his closest friends was Doug Panaccio, and Doug had a little sister named Trisha. Trisha was 18. She was on the debate team. She was really popular. She had a scholarship to Purdue University. And she was really looking forward to going to college. It was only a few months after graduation. It was August 13th, which was Friday the 13th of 1993, when Trisha and her friends got together for a scavenger hunt party and they went out to dinner. And this was going to be sort of like one of those last hurrahs of summer before Trisha and her friends kind of went their separate ways to college. And after the festivities, Trisha drove home and parked in the driveway of her family home. And this was sometime around 1 a.m. Her keys were still in her hand and she moved towards the side of the house to let herself in. But before her key met the door, she was attacked. She never made it inside. The circumstances surrounding the discovery of Trisha's body is something I wouldn't wish on anyone. Trisha was found by her dad at 9.15 a.m. on the front steps of their house when he went to go walk the family dog. He screamed so loudly that his entire family heard it, as well as neighbors on the block. Trisha was dead. 
She was fully clothed, lying on the steps covered in blood. She had multiple stab wounds to her torso. Trisha's body was in rigor mortis, but that didn't stop her dad from desperately trying to resuscitate her by performing CPR. And while police secured the scene, neighbors started to emerge to inquire about what was going on. One of these neighbors was 17-year-old Mike Gargiulo. The teenage Mike appeared to be panicked, stoic, and believable. The police interviewed everybody who was involved in the scavenger hunt and partying on the night prior, and nothing really glaring seemed to appear to them. Mike Gargiulo was that good. He did it, but he presented as totally believable. And it's unclear how long he'd been thinking about killing Trisha. What we do know is that Mike and another boy gave Trisha a ride to her boyfriend's house two days before she was killed. Mike was described as one part awkward, insecure teen, and the other was a guy who had sort of a crazy switch, where if he really wanted something, he was going to get it one way or another. And he flipped the switch, and all emotions were gone. Yet, even as a teen, Gargiulo had the ability to neutralize and distract from the truth. He was questioned by police. No red flags ever flew up. And the Picachios had no cause for suspicion at all, and they never felt they had any reason to suspect that this quiet and polite friend of their son's could have anything to do with this. In all the time he'd spent at the Picachios' home, he'd never displayed any aggressive or violent behavior. After all, why would he be suspected? He was the quiet one, a guy who cowered in the back of the crowd. However, this soon changed, and in my opinion, it's due to the fact that even though Mike wanted to get away with this, his subconscious was trying to out him. And nearly a year after Trisha's murder, Mike began drawing attention to himself with really questionable actions. He brought Trisha's mom, Diane, flowers. And remember, this is a year after her murder. And Diane couldn't put her finger on why, but she was immediately suspicious of Michael. She recalled the encounter in an LA Weekly interview. And she said, I'm like, why is Michael bringing us? It was live greenery at Easter time. He brought us a lily. He brought us a dinner certificate to a restaurant. And then he even bought her husband, Rick, a shirt. Now you have to remember, this is a year after their daughter was murdered. And now their son's friend is giving them gifts on a religious holiday. So Diane said to her husband, why is Michael giving us all this stuff? And they went and told the detectives about it. And the detectives agreed that it was suspicious. And it was enough for Cook County Sheriff's detectives to take a closer look at Michael Gargiulo. And they were working with a psychologist. And the psychologist said, quote, he's trying to expatiate his sin. He's trying to atone for his crime with the presence that he was giving the family. And later, Trisha's brother, Doug, remembered a conversation that he had with Mike. And the LA Weekly reported that Mike looked at Doug, and this was back when this crime first happened, looked at Doug and said, if you knew who did this, would you kill them? Doug responded, uh, well, what do you think? Ask any father, any brother. I think you know the answer. Doug eventually learned from one of the detectives that after that conversation, Michael Gargiulo called the police investigating Trisha's death and told them that Doug had threatened him, citing that conversation. He'd also pointed the finger at their friend Eric in an effort to mislead the police. 
Mike knew, or at least thought he knew, how to play the system. He knew how to make other people seem guilty or suspicious, as he seemed to be a concerned citizen. Either way, Gargiulo's story worked. It seemed obvious as to what he was doing in hindsight. But when Eric refused to talk with police, it was Eric who became their number one suspect. Police weren't able to curate any evidence against him, Gargiulo or anyone else for that matter. Five years later, Gargiulo suddenly showed up on the Picasso's doorstep. He said to Trisha's mom, quote, I need to talk to Rick. And her mother responded, well, he's at work, Michael. And to that, he said, can I wait? And she said, yes. And then she said, he sat and waited for over an hour for him to come home from work, sat at my kitchen table. Trisha's dad, Rick, said when he got home, I remember walking in the garage door and I looked at him and he had this look on his face like he was going to say something to me. But then the garage door opens. Michael's father and one of his sisters walks in and he says, we have to leave Michael. It was at this point, Trisha's parents had no doubt that Michael was involved. Trisha's dad called the police and told them what happened. But it was too late because Michael was already on his way to Los Angeles to escape the scrutiny of Trisha's murder. Trisha's family was absolutely crushed and they moved out of the house that they lived in because the memories of Trisha's dying on that doorstep and nothing was ever the same for them. But luckily, although Michael Gargiulo denied killing his best friend's sister, Trisha had fought back. She fought and clawed for her life as she was attacked and being killed on the steps of her own home. The only clue to the murder of Trisha existed in the form of cells under her fingernails. The police collected this evidence, but they wouldn't have anything to do with this evidence as it was 1993 at the time. This is only seven years after the first DNA case. Science was moving slow, but thank God they kept the evidence because this DNA sample would eventually change everything. And they didn't want to forget about Trisha's case, obviously, and let it go cold. But these things happen for a number of reasons. You know, the original cops in Trisha's case, they retired as the case was going colder and colder. And the original detectives are generally the ones who carry the torch for these cases. And at the time, Mike moved to L.A. in the late 90s. And it was so much harder to track and re-interview suspects back then. People just sort of went into the wind. And that's exactly what happened with Gargiulo. And when he did move to L.A., he claimed it was because his older brother, Ken, was moving there. So Mike soon followed and Mike's girlfriend, Allison, joined them soon after. Allison and Mike lived right behind Grauman's Theater in Hollywood at the Armor Arms apartment on Orchid Avenue, which was not far from Ashley's house. Mike was cheating on Allison before she'd even arrived in L.A., so the relationship was destined to fail from the start. He kept the act up with Allison while he had two secret girlfriends, one who was a McDonald's cashier and the other who was a doctor. He ended up having a baby with the cashier. He was such a sociopath that Allison was none the wiser while all this was going on. And Mike's first job was working as a bouncer at the Rainbow Bar off of Sunset in the late 90s, and he was fired when he punched somebody. Everybody loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. So it's going to take you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. I'm really feeling this because 
Lex and I both are really like into Gatsby stuff right now. So I am loving the vibe of this game. And you're going to step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. It's perfect for all of the firsties out there. There's mystery, danger, and romance as you search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. And you can customize your very own luxuries of state island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. So as the investigators continued to investigate Mike, they realized that Michael lied perpetually and pathologically, but there seemed to be nuggets of truth peppered into his tall tales. To many, he claimed to be a professional boxer, training to be an Olympic boxer, and he would bring up being a boxer on many occasions. But the truth was, is that Michael Gargiulo wasn't actually a boxer at all. He maybe dabbled in boxing and took some classes, but the pro was actually his brother, Ken. And remember how the police initially tracked Michael's last name down when Ashley was first murdered. Mike told someone that he was suing a construction company because he had been hit by a car at a busy intersection, when in fact it had been his dog that was really hit by a car. 
And what stood out the most in terms of his lies, though, was what he told people the reason he'd moved to L.A. was. Because of a murder he didn't commit, and he knew who the real killer was, he'd also say things like that despite knowing who it was, he couldn't say who that person was. And he also mentioned his DNA would be present at this murder scene. Because the victim was almost like family to him, and he was always at their house. And the police found this kind of story particularly odd, and it was sort of a subconscious admission type thing, at least in their eyes. But here's the crazy thing, and the lucky thing, is that those Illinois cold case detectives were actually in L.A., and they were there to get a DNA sample from Gargiulo. And the reason why they were calling the the L.A. sheriffs was they needed help in tracking him down. But he was really hard to find. There were no uh, record of utilities being paid in his name. He knew how to remain elusive, and he did this on purpose. Right. And when detectives from both agencies met and compared notes, there were definite similarities between Ashley and Trisha's cases. Both had been stabbed. Both crept up on during the night. Neither were sexually assaulted. Both attacked on their own property, and both attacks were frenzied. But the most glaring similarity was that Gargiulo knew and lived less than a block from each of them. Right. And when the detectives finally tracked Mike Gargiulo down, he was living in West Los Angeles with a new girlfriend. Her name, and not Mike Gargiulo's, was on the lease of their apartment. Then, in December of 2002, the Cook County, Illinois police finally got a DNA sample from Gargiulo to compare with that that was found under Trisha's nails. Although he had tried to block the police from doing so for a number of months, he, they still managed to accomplish this. Still, even now, with this sample, it would be months before testing was complete. They had no choice but to wait to arrest him and hope he didn't hurt anyone in the meantime. And remember, the LAPD had no physical evidence in Ashley's case, so their only hope in getting Mark Gargiulo off the streets was if the Cook County PD succeeded in securing a DNA match to their victim, Trisha Picaccio, so that they could make an arrest in Trisha's case, therefore getting Mike off the streets and ensuring that women would be saved. Yeah, but the process is slow, and they're doing their best to keep their tabs on him. And by February of 2003, Mike had another girlfriend, a woman named Maria Garolo. And she was actually the ex-wife of a famous Mexican singer. And Mike met Maria because he'd been doing air conditioning work on the couple's house. Mike wore blue surgical shoe covers, like booties, when he did work in people's homes. And apparently he relentlessly followed Maria around, begging her to go out with him until she finally relented. He eventually won her over because soon she was no longer with her husband and Mike was living with her and her four kids in her house. And Maria dumped him after he became violent during an argument and kept asking her for money. When she finally did dump him, he threatened to kill her and said he can get away with it due to his knowledge of forensics. Then in September of 2003, 10 whole months after the DNA sample had been taken from Gargiulo, the results were back on the testing done in the 93 case of Trisha. The human DNA found on the fingernails of the Illinois teen was a match to Mike Gargiulo. This is great news, right? This is super exciting. We've got the match. Cook County Police Department spent the money to send detectives there. 
They poured a ton of resources into securing, getting this DNA match. This is like a slam dunk, best case scenario. All of their efforts are paying off, right? This is all the evidence they would have needed to indict Mike Gargiulo for Trisha's murder. Wrong. So this is a fuck up we've been referencing for a while now. We talked about it in the beginning of this episode. We talked about it in the end of our episode on Ashley Ellerin. In a fuck up of essentially colossal proportions, prosecutors in Trisha's case declined to file charges against Mike for Trisha's murder. And truly, there has been no public explanation for this other than saying it just wasn't enough evidence. And there's absolutely no excuse for this. And when you read between the lines of this this decision, it's really the DA suggesting or, you know, inferencing the reason they weren't charging Mike Gargiulo was because they believed that perhaps Trisha had been maybe consensually touched or with Mike Gargiulo. I'm not saying intimate. I mean, that would be a stretch. But in so many words, they're saying, you know, it doesn't prove that he killed her. Which is such bullshit. Yeah, it really is bullshit. And witnesses in this case stated that Trisha had touched only her boyfriend and friends on the day of her death. She hadn't even seen Gargiulo on that day at all. Yet his blood was under her nails. So they obviously thought that he was good enough witness, like I said, to send cops, fly cops to L.A. I mean, this was a lot of effort and money. You have to get these things approved. So at least in the police department, they believed, hey, we're... The person under her fingernails is the guy we're looking for. Mm -hmm. They found him, but the DA did not prosecute. And their decision not to prosecute, which was Cook County's decision, didn't just crush Trisha's family. It also really screwed the LAPD because Gargiulo would remain free. And remember, that was the only physical evidence that they had against him. So they had nothing on him besides the circumstantial evidence in the L.A. case. And while they could monitor him the best they could within the confines of of law enforcement and resources, they were helpless in stopping him from hurting or possibly killing other women. In 2003, Mike continued to date and charm unsuspecting women. He met them on Match.com, met them on AOL. He met them in person. Two years later, in 2005, he was living with a new girlfriend in El Monte, which is east of L.A. His girlfriend was pregnant, and Gargiulo had his own company called 24-Hour Heating and Air. He beat and abused this girlfriend constantly, and she was becoming fed up. She moved out and left him on Thanksgiving of 2005. And less than a week later, Maria Bruno, a stunning 32-year-old woman from El Salvador, who was a mom to four kids, moved into the same apartment complex as Gargiulo. And she was newly separated from her husband, and her kids were living with him, and she was getting her new life started. Maria worked at a furniture store and had a boyfriend who was a restaurant manager. And less than two weeks after she moved into the building, she would be hideously butchered by Gargiulo. Her neck was slashed and her torso mutilated with one breast cut from her body. Although Maria and her husband, Irving, were on the path towards separation, they were still on very good terms due to the fact that they shared custody and lovingly parented their four children they had together. Unfortunately, Irving was the one to find Maria in the apartment. Um, the image of your wife as you found her, when she was killed, 
How has that impacted you at all? It's been extremely tough throughout the years. I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I went through. The images I've had to see, I can not unsee it. Over the years, those images have caused great pain for me. After Irving found Maria, he called 911, and they arrived at the apartment complex in El Monte where Maria lived. And when they started canvassing the scene, they noticed evidence immediately. The detectives found a blue surgical booty that had been worn by whoever killed Bruno right outside of her apartment. The cops theorized that the killer wore these to prevent leaving forensic evidence behind. After Maria's murder, witnesses came forward and said that they had saw a man in a hoodie attempting to open her door and looking into her window. And another person said that they saw a hooded man follow Maria as she carried groceries inside. So the detective assigned to Maria's case was Detective Mark Lilienfeld with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And I actually know Mark personally, and he is a true genius at investigating homicides. And he was basically interviewed by 48 Hours about this case. And he said explicitly that Maria, quote, had picked that building specifically because it was very secure. You either had to have a passcode or a key to get through the front door. So it was a very secure building. He also said that the scene was so chilling that he still remembers what day of the week it was, a Thursday. He remembers spotting the blue surgical booty shoe cover in front of Maria's apartment. He remembers seeing that a screen had been pried loose from her kitchen window. He also believed the weapon used to kill Maria was taken from her own kitchen. He had stabbed her while she was sleeping. We're talking about a 90-pound, 32-year-old woman, defenseless, asleep in her bed in her home, where if there's any one place in the world, she should feel most secure. That attack is every woman's nightmare. In fact, it was a seasoned detective's worst nightmare as well. Detectives interviewed neighbors and checked arrest records of the building's occupants. Nobody in the gated community seemed capable of such carnage. Lillianfeld said that we ran the criminal history and nobody appeared to have a serious arrest record. And remember, the apartment was likely in Mike's girlfriend's name. Gargiulo was never home when police knocked and never responded to the cards that the police left. He was never interviewed and Bruno's murder remained unsolved. And this is one thing I want to say real quick is that the LAPD and the LASD are separate entities. There's no reason in El Monte that a murder that happens years later would be immediately on the radar of the LAPD in the Hollywood division. You know, so just to, even though this is both LA, these are different entities. Right. Yeah. And it's pretty far away too. I mean, I, my big Bellowick that I always keep on talking about is that they, you know, we should have more communication. There should be giant databases and everything like that. But it's not like somebody could go over to another detective that's right down the hall and say, hey, do you know about this case? Right. So at this point, Lillian Feld, he had no idea that Maria's murder was connected to the two others. And those working Ashley and Trisha's case didn't know Mike had stolen yet another life. And no one knew that for these investigators to solve any of these cases, another woman would be victimized by Gargiulo. 
It had been 15 years since Trisha's murder, seven years since Ashley's murder, and three years since Maria's murder. Mike was still living carefree. And in 2008, Mike Gargiulo had somehow convinced a woman to marry him. And the couple now lived in Santa Monica with her mother in the 1200 block of Euclid Avenue. And then on the night of April 28th, a woman named Michelle Murphy, who was a neighbor of Gargiulo's, was fast asleep in the bedroom of her second floor apartment. She awoke suddenly in terror. There was a man on top of her. He was stabbing her, plunging a knife into her chest. The assailant had crept in through a window and he was wearing a hoodie and he kept stabbing. Then somehow, some way, the five foot one inch Michelle was able to kick this guy off of her. And the guy fell, backed away, and fled. But before he ran away, he said one thing I'm sorry. But I think that's insane that he said, I'm sorry. Insane. I. I can't imagine, obviously, the utter terror, but also the utter confusion of what is going on in her head. And then to hear that as the one thing that your attacker says to you as he's leaving. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's almost as if he's had, for lack of a better term, he's had practice. He's done this before over and over again. Yeah. There was something about, not to say that, you know, we know that, that some of his other victims had fought back. Something went awry here and then... A switch just went off in his head and he realized the fight or flight, he just fl- That he is flew. a very fight or flight moment. He flew and then natural reaction or whatever is to say, I'm sorry. It's so strange. Well, you know what it is? It's like by the third stab, he's usually incapacitated yeah. the person. Yep. Yeah. And I think the fact that the second he was thwarted, like she kicks him off him and they're both standing because it, and it's kind of like, who's going to win? In his, in his head, in his primal head. Maybe not. I mean, of course he would if he tried again, but it really frazzled him. And she actually chased him outside. I can't. So again, awesome. another yeah. fight or flight thing. Like, that's very she, so interesting. So he starts running and she goes after him and just watches him run away, you know, but he makes it to her front door, you know, and is kind of like she's obviously on an adrenaline thing, thing and he runs. And I think by then it's like, oh, God. I haven't incapacitated her. She could scream. People were here. Because I think the reason why he started attacking them in bed is because, like, he could quiet them very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and have as much time as he wanted to do whatever he did. Michelle Murphy's case changed everything. Number one, she survived. Number two, he had cut himself during the heroic struggle. And finally, Now, the Los Angeles detectives would have DNA evidence tying Michael Gargiulo to an attempted murder. And the DNA from the scene was tested, and it came back as a match against Gargiulo's that had been collected in Trisha's case years prior. Gargiulo lived across from Michelle, and after she recovered, she later told the police that before the attack, Gargiulo passed her in the alley while she was working out and tried to talk to her. Finally, they had Gargiulo for Ashley, for Trisha, and for Michelle. But what about Maria Bruno's case in Almonte? Monte? 
I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French. And it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten. And I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to Allo Moves com and use code first for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code first, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code first. So you can call this whatever you want, but this is the second serendipitous thing that's occurred in this case. So is this fate? Is this just simply good communication between police agencies? We don't know. But the officer on Michelle's case, Michelle Murphy's case in Santa Monica, who was Sergeant Lewis, remembered a conversation he'd had months earlier with an L.A. County sheriff detective named Mark Lilienfeld. And the two of them were chatting about sort of their unsolved cases. And Mark Lilienfeld described this unsolved case he had that was stumping him, described Maria Bruno's slaying, a beautiful woman attacked and stabbed to death as she slept in her bed. This is exactly what happened in Michelle Murphy's attack. There were enough similarities for Lilienfeld to take a closer look at Gargiulo as a potential suspect. And he was sure once he found out that Gargiulo and Maria were neighbors. Proximity is clearly a primary part of Gargiulo's M.O., Detective Lillianfield said in an interview with 48 Hours, quote, It was like the lottery. It was ironic. But it does happen. When officers network, we solve cases. And Gargiulo was arrested on June 6, 2008, by the Santa Monica Police Department. 
and charged with the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. He was later charged with the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno. Everyone in this case was forced to be patient because just as the murder investigations connected to Gargiulo took years, the judicial process would as well. The trial was expected to start right away, but that wouldn't be the case. And do you want to hear something even more infuriating in terms of the judicial process in this case and in these series of cases? Even after Michael Gargiulo's arrest in California for these two murders and the attempted murder, the Cook County DA still refused to indict Gargiulo for Trisha Boccaccio's murder. It was categorized and left open as a cold case and listed as unsolved for years following his arrest. To reiterate, it was the Cook County DA's fault that Gargiulo had the opportunity to kill Maria Bruno and attack Michelle Murphy. You would think that the DA, who is a woman, would feel bad about that, but instead she doubled down and refused to prosecute Gargiulo, even in the face of all of this evidence, all the evidence of these murders that had followed Trisha's. And just imagine how Trisha's family felt. At least prosecution in California was imminent. Opening statements are underway right now in the Hollywood Ripper trial. Prosecutors started by calling Michael Gargiulo the boy next door killer and are expected to seek the death penalty. The methodical and systematic slaughter of women. Gargiulo's plan to kill was to first identify a target who lived near him, acquaint himself with that victim and her habits and routines, and then watch, shadow, stalk, and hunt down the victims relentlessly as part of his plan to kill. The trial took years longer than expected to start, which impacted not only the feelings of Ashley's friends and family, but also impacted Carolyn's book. I was working on the book for eight years, I think. Really, as soon as I learned that there was a man arrested for, for murder who was connected to um, three other victims and that there was going to be this ensuing court case. That was in 2008. And so it was that year that I started thinking, like, it's now or never for really doing this because, you know, there's there's going to be media attention. And there's going to be this real trial that I can follow. And so it's time, time to start putting things together. But, you know, at that time, I was still in my 20s. The, the cultural conversation around feminism and women's stories and and uh, uh, the patriarchy, all of that was was not in my purview at that time. I, you know, I had never taken a women's studies class. I think these things didn't occur to me. I just thought, oh, I'm, I'm writing a story about, you know, female friendship. But of course, you know, I have to attack it from the conventional way, which is following, you know, the journey of the male killer or following, you know, this male detective that is going to, that we're going to watch, like uncover the secrets of what happened to her. Um, and, the fact is I sold my book on proposal in 2010 and I was telling, you know, I told my publisher that my, that the, the trial was expected to be in 2011 and that I would, because usually 
trials happen, you know, within a year or two of a preliminary hearing. And so the preliminary hearing for this case was in 2010. So I, you know, pitched this book and said I was going to be writing in the next two years covering structured around the trial. And uh, then, of course, as you know, the trial actually did not happen until this year, summer 2019. And so was 11 years after this guy had been arrested, which is, you know, really an extreme delay and very unusual for, you know, having the having had the preliminary hearing in 2010. But I would say in some ways that, you know, that turned out to be a blessing for uh, the fact that I ended up writing my having to write my book in a completely different way because I did not have the conventional trial structure to base things around and I actually got to, you know, grow up as a as a writer and as a woman during those years. I mean, I started the book like I, when I had just turned 30 and it didn't come out until I was almost 40 in a way. And during that time, I watched myself, you know, move into a different stage of life and watch my perspective on the events change. And I was and I watched kind of the cultural conversation around uh, ideas like slut shaming and like toxic masculinity and concepts that I were not um, that I was not well versed in were starting to become part of our conversation. And all of that uh, really influenced the final book that came out in 2017. When the trial finally did commence, Carolyn attended the proceedings and she had to straddle the dichotomy of being journalist and friend. I didn't, you know, I wasn't sure I was what I was writing or if I was writing a book at all at that point. I just knew that I, you know, wanted to find out more answers. And in court, Carolyn was sitting with other press people. The DA came over to all us and asked, like, who are you writing for? And then I said, well, I'm a childhood friend of Ashley's. And then suddenly she was like, you know, I was treated a lot differently than the rest of the press at that at that time. And, you know, that went on to be one of the that turned out to be like one of the most sort of crucial um, elements of the book in a way of me kind of grappling with, am I press or am I a friend of the victim? And, you know, what do these different sides of of the coin or these different perspectives, how are they informing one another? And do I feel ethical you know do I feel like I have a right to be here in a way like but then I went on to kind of become friendly with some of these press people who I who I respected and I used to feel like I wish that I could just be as sort of neutral as these press people that are just not afraid and they're just showing up and asking questions but yet when I was there I felt like I wanted to hide. Carolyn knew at some point they would show crime scene photos from Ashley's murder up on the projector in court. And I show up for the opening statement trial, which was May of this year. And, you know, I had I had basically nine years to know, prepare, or I sort of knew about the existence of these photos. I knew what they looked like. I, you know, I still had no idea what it would feel like to look at them. But, you know, I wasn't I didn't actually think that they would be shown in the opening statements and I was only going to be there for a couple of days. But surprisingly, this new DA just right off the bat, within five minutes into his opening statements, showed the most graphic images of every victim's body and crime scene. And suddenly it was like right there in front of me. And that was, you know, I ended up writing 
an essay about that um, for New York Magazine later that month. But, you know, on the one hand, it's like, uh, wow, this is this is really, really uh, very, very raw and lurid. And on the other hand, it felt like feels um, this feels like old in a way like I was like wow it was a reminder of like that even in court and you know even in court the stories of of dead women and and kind of the narratives about them are are being told by men and from a male perspective and it felt like this is this DA thinks that his best narrative here is to just immediately show desecration of the body of these women and just like really shockful like within the first two minutes of showing up and trying to hammer home like look at what was done to these women's bodies I, I don't know that that really struck me like this is this really the best way to do things does it feel like in step with the current moment I don't know it feels like maybe that's the old way of what DAs think work in works in that kind of situation but back to the beginning how did I feel seeing them um it was not, you know, when I was younger and I heard about them, I worried, like, was was I going to vomit? Was something going to happen to my body that I would pass out? Or was something, you know, that I ever experienced before going to happen? When I was older, that's not what I felt. And, you know, the fact is when, when they were finally shown on the screen, this, these pictures that had so many years of buildup, I felt, it felt surreal in a way. And it felt... And I think also that's a testament to how um, desensitized we are to these images of, of images of violence that we see, you know, on every premium cable in any crime show. It's like things have gotten so much more extreme on just like your regular Showtime crime show that when you see uh, an actual crime scene, uh, I don't know, it registered as... I don't know, it registered as surreal and kind of numbing. So Michael Gargiulo was on trial for two murders and an attempted murder. So we can't get into all of the nitty gritty of all of it. But here are some of the broad strokes. By the time the trial started, Michael Gargiulo was 43 years old. He pleaded not guilty to all of the charges in the California cases. The surviving victim, Michelle Murphy, testified. And the now famous movie star Ashton Kutcher also testified, which created quite a stir in the tabloids. Michael Gargiulo's defense cited multiple excuses for his actions, one being mental illness, another being abuse as a child, another that he had dissociative identity disorder, that he committed these crimes in his sleep, in a sleep-like state. None of them worked. And they referenced specifically the sleep-like state the trance-like state he was in when he was committing these murders in terms of Michelle Murphy's attack when he said, sorry. And they said, basically, once she had kicked him off of her, he woke up, Mm -hmm. said, sorry, realizing, holy fuck, what am I doing? And running off. I mean, the prosecution found a million holes to poke in that, but I see what they were doing there. On August 15th, 2019, Michael Gargiulo was convicted on all counts. It was just two weeks ago, on October 18th, 2019, when a jury recommended the death penalty for Michael Gargiulo. So let's be clear here. His first murder was in 1993. His second was in 2001. His third was in 2005. His attempted murder was in 2008. And it's not until 2019, the end of the year, 
that he's being sentenced. Oh, man. That's ridiculous. Arduous, painful process for the victim's families. Back in Cook County, the DA finally wised up and in 2011 charged Gargiulo for Trisha's murder, which is four years after he was arrested for the L.A. murder. And that marked the beginning of the end of a nearly two-decade-long quest by Trisha's family to bring their daughter's killer to justice. And he's being extradited to Illinois to stand trial for Trisha's murder next. And that's literally probably happening right now because he was just sentenced two weeks ago. So literally paperwork's done. He might be on a plane right now. Yeah. Yeah. Have a nice trip, shitbird. My fuckhead. Fucking asshole. So Gargiulo's convictions may seem like victories, but when a perpetrator is being convicted and sentenced to death, it still doesn't bring their victims back to life. The case was unsolved for many years, and I was in my early 20s at the time and starting my career as a journalist, and I felt like one day if I ever, you know, have the confidence or, you know, if I could ever, if I ever write a book, I want it to be about Ashley and our friendship and what I felt were some sort of universal themes around the way that she and I had started out with everything in common as girls and then ended up taking different paths so that at the time of her death, um, I was a college student in New York and kind of insecure and sort of just figuring out who I wanted to be in the world. And she seemed to kind of have a completely different hyper, um, hyper mature and sort of um, glamorous life where she was dating older guys and doing drugs and moonlighting as a stripper and she dated actors. And the last time I saw her, she had come to visit me in New York about a year before she died. And that was when I realized, wow, I'm not sure um, whether or not we have anything in common anymore. And I just knew that she seemed so different from the girl that I used to know and that being around her really made me doubt myself. And then when I learned that she died, um, of course, I was, you know, really numb and confused. And I wanted to find out answers about what had happened to her. But I also really wanted to, um, as I started to talk about, you know, the loss and what had happened to other women, I realized that it seems like everyone has had a friendship that reminds them of me and Ashley. Everyone's had a friend who got away, someone that you um, started out having a lot in common with, and then, you know, you, something happened, or perhaps, you know, maybe you did lose that person to loss or just a different life path, but that um, everyone kind of holds on to that memory of that relationship as a touchstone in their life. And so, um, my aspirations for the book was that it was part, you know, repertorial and journalistic as I kind of followed the case to piece together what had happened to her in the last year of her life and who her killer was. And then I also wanted to really unpack uh, that, you know, our our friendship and the last weekend we spent together and kind of how it made me feel about myself because I felt like that was a, that was the universal thing for women. So as a woman, One of the scariest things about this guy is truly not understanding what drives a perpetrator like this to want to stalk, slash, and in Ashley's case, he even selected and created a scenario in which he could insert himself into her life. And all the while, there was no motivation that was driven by sexual assault. None of his victims were sexually assaulted. 
And the three of us were talking about this case. And one of the things I noticed was that in terms of his pathology, Michael Gargiulo, we started his first crime in 93, Trisha Picaccio. He attacked her on the front steps of Trisha's home. His next murder. And I'm not going to say next that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley Allerin, 2001. It was kind of in like the foyer sort of area of the home, like in the hallway between bathroom, bedroom, sort of an interior hallway. His next one in 2005, Michelle Bruno, he attacks her sleeping in bed. He moves closer and closer into sort of where women feel safe. And then again, Michelle Murphy in 2008, she was sleeping in bed. So I think he realized, hey, there's the least amount of scuffle when I get them in bed. Um, I can incapacitate them really quickly. And I think it's also more intimate. Like, Well, and it's his own form, or maybe it's his own form of escalation too, where it's like he's getting closer and closer, more intimate, more into their personal space, which is very, very interesting as well. I agree, because I think that he... So Trisha's, I don't think he broke into Trisha's house. Yeah. Ashley's, we know that he at least slashed the tire and probably broke her boiler to elicit a call to him. Mm -hmm. Maria Bruno's case, people had said they saw this guy jiggling the door. You know, uh, a screen had been removed. It's he probably he's getting, made it, and he's getting more ballsy. Like as, he probably made his way in a very G, like Golden State Killer fashion, breaking in beforehand, casing, seeing, and and I know at least in Marina Bruno's case in El Monte, he created an escape route. He opened like a window and created like a step for him to get out really quickly. So I think he was just finessing his approach, and I think he realized like, yeah, attacking a woman asleep, their response time will be slower. You know. They're they're completely and they're most vulnerable. You know, they're not going to be in this shape to protect themselves. And I just thought it was so interesting because it was very clear in the first three that like doorstep, interior hallway, bedroom, you know, um, right. super weird. Yeah. But unlike, the, you know, you bring up the Golden State Killer case, uh, which there were sexual assaults, but it never really seemed like sexual assaults were the... Focus. The, the be yeah. all, the end all. It was about power. It was about I'm I'm lord over this house. I'm going to ra- rape this woman, uh, uh, tie you up, eat your food, take just, your family photos. Yeah, exactly. Take like oh, trinkets sick. that are that are that are really personal. Leave you know stuff that might be leave money. Leave money. Leave stuff that might be more valuable. I own you, and that's what he was trying to do. So, you know, we were trying to figure out. With with Gargiulo, what was the psychology behind these Ripper killings? And we all had theories, but none of them were really that satisfying. So then I came up with the idea that we should phone a friend. We should phone a real expert on this sort of thing. And who did we decide to call? Paul freaking Holes. You know, really, it, it's more of a... At most, you know, a you know, he might have been he may, he might have said hi to each of these women, but he didn't have an established relationship. He didn't have that type of uh, close emotional connection that sometimes uh, exists when you see this type of homicide. You know, this dramatic overkill with 40, 50, 60 stab wounds. You know, so if the way that I'm reading this with that number of stab wounds, it, even though these women are fully clothed. 
Um, there is a, a component of, of sexual gratification that's going on. And, and this is going to sound really weird, but there is a phenomenon. It's, it's known as pickerism. And this is where the knife or another type of object is basically penile substitution. And that the knife going into this female's body over and over and over again is very sexually gratifying to an individual like this. Now, he may or may not uh, achieve some sort of gra sexual gratification at the time that he is committing this type of violence, but he most certainly fantasizes about it beforehand, and then he is going to relive that homicide over and over again for the rest of his life. Paul Holes, love that guy. Like to thank Paul for taking Thanks, the Paul. taking the call on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Pauling a friend, you know, got a Paul friend, got a Paul friend. No, that is so interesting. And we had to have these discussions where it's like it has to be connected sexually somehow, and that makes because so much sense. It's symbolic, absolutely it's symbolic. Where it, he doesn't need his dick to be involved for it to be sexually gratifying. I mean, Billy just said a quote where Billy say it. Everything is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Right. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that is completely what this case is about. Yeah. Sex for him is not the act of sex. He, the ultimate power is the stealing of a life, which is the ultimate crime. Right. There's nothing greater on a philosophical level than taking somebody's life. It's taking away everything they've done and everything they would do. And the ripple effect is the most far reaching of any of that. And I think someone like him, someone who likes to observe the aftermath of his crimes. I mean, if you just remember what he did in Trisha Picaccio's case, showing up, observing how the family was grieving. Let me give you a gift. Asking Doug, the brother of Trisha, would you kill the person who did this? Mm -hmm. It's like he sort of liked to revel in the aftermath. Well, and like what Paul said, it's like he's going to relive this homicide over and over and over again. And for him to kind of insert himself into all these different aspects of her family's life, is get, he's getting off from that when he leaves there and goes home. And that's the most sickening part of the entire thing. Yes, absolutely. And I just... Trisha was the closest of his victims as far as people he no. knew. Yeah. yeah. And I think he realized, oh shit, I don't like this. Yeah. This is too close. Well, then you think, and then Ashley, it's like he inserted himself in her life, but not as much. And so they kept getting farther and farther from him well, as he, he went on. He realized the uh, liability involved with that. Yeah. Uh, but he also knew it had to be delicate because he knew that had he not at least be befriended Ashley, she never would have opened the door for him that night. Yeah. Remember, she had bars on the windows. You know, someone let him in. And it was her because she wasn't terrified of him. Then we hear Maria Bruno, you know, he was following her with groceries. We don't know if they talked or interacted. Probably something casual. Mail. This. Have you experienced this in the building? How's your water pressure? You the know, other. You know, some shit like that happened. Yeah. And then Michelle Murphy, the survivor, talked about how she had he had tried to talk to her the day before he was trying to establish a rapport and he liked it. It was like a super, it was like foreplay to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I think that, you know, what he was doing with Ashley in particular, because Ashley seems like the one that was the most calculated and, mm -hmm. and obviously it's the one that has become the biggest in the media. And the reason why he's known as the Hollywood Ripper, because of, the Ashton Kutcher collection connection because of 
you know, her situation because of how pretty she was, all those things that we always talk about with victims. But um, you're right. I think he kind of was, you know, Jack, where you were saying was that, you know, he with, with Trisha, he was really close. She was in his car. Then with Ashley, he kind of set himself up with her and then got, you know, got caught basically, but they couldn't pin anything on him. So he was he was uh, questioned in that. And he was kind of getting further and further. He didn't want to put himself in that situation, but I think he couldn't help himself. Yeah. So he was kind of like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to covet what, you know, like you talk about in Silence of the Lambs, I'm going to covet what is, what is close to you, what is near you, what you see every day. But he didn't necessarily want to put himself on that radar. Right. So Los Angeles law enforcement believes that there are other victims. And Gargiulo allegedly told authorities in the LA County jail that just because 10 women were killed and his DNA was present doesn't mean he murdered anyone. And it's like he had a Freudian slip because he said 10. Mm-hmm. Damn. The police say that Gargiulo traveled between Illinois and California. So there could be cases in the States in between. And from the beginning, every step of this case had this media spectacle element and everybody was given a label Mike Gargiulo he was nicknamed the Hollywood Ripper or the Chiller Killer Trisha Panaccio she was a tragedy and a murder tossed aside by the Cook County DA Ashton Kutcher the actor whose date was murdered and the guy who saw blood on the floor and thought it was wine and then Ashley who was the victim who was going out with Ashton Kutcher the, the trauma that a murder or violent crime creates in dozens and dozens of people and the ripple effect that that has that has affected so many people's lives, I think is is a real is a real waste. And it's, and it's, a, and it's a really outrageous thing. I, I hope that I, I try to take the opportunity when I talk about her to elevate the conversation to larger ideas of, you know, either what we can do about gendered violence or what we can do about the way true crime is told, true crime stories are told in the news or on television, and that we really need to be able to have empathy when we hear about anything happening in in this respect and what i hope is that the book and and that you know better better crime storytelling in the future will allow people to really feel something when they hear these stories rather than just kind of binge watch you know she was a real person that is probably like someone you know in your life and what happened to her is is a relative of the kind of things that are happening all around us and and i want that to make people feel something There's no denying that the media is a prominent voice within this story, but like all voices, it is apt to miss some information and miss some very important details about the very real people who splash the covers of newspapers and take over the headlines. So here's some things about Ashley that the media missed as told by her mother during Michael Gargiulo's sentencing. And this is her victim impact statement. Um, let's talk about Ashley for a moment. Uh, did, you, uh, did you know Ashley to be an artist? Yes, she was a very talented artist and she was admitted to UCLA at the fine arts program. There was only 65 slots 
open for that. So I was very proud of her. Oh, gee. Oils, charcoals, watercolors, everything. Pottery. She was a she was a gifted writer. And she really had a wonderful sense of humor. She loved music, played the piano. Uh, she was a strong swimmer. She was a lifeguard. And uh, she loved playing water polo. I think she was a class act with a little bit of naughty mixed in. I always remember her every day. I, you know, I, I feel so blessed to have had her as my daughter. I couldn't have asked for any more, more of a beautiful person. She was exquisite and a magnificent young woman. And when she was five, she came home from kindergarten one day. Oh, and she was so excited. And she ran in the kitchen and she said, Mommy, Mommy, I heard the most wonderful man today sing. I listened to him and the song was so beautiful. Promise me, Mommy, promise me that you'll listen to that song. And then this little five-year-old says to me, and listen to the lyrics. You know, and I stood there and I went, lyrics. Oh, yes, the words. And I said, well, yes, I will. What is it, Ashley? And she said, oh, it's Mr. Louis Armstrong, and it's a wonderful world. Promise me you'll listen to the lyrics. And when I hear that song today, it breaks my heart that that was Ashley. That song was Ashley. And she told me about that when she was five. Yes. So just beyond the salacious, binge-worthy details of every crime story exists extremely complex facets of the human experience, characteristics and parallels between ourselves and victims that resonate regardless of what we do for work, religion, beliefs, or indulgences. It's easy to slap a label on things. Our brains do this all the time to make things simple for us to understand, simple for us to process so that things are black and white. But as we know, there are at least 50 shades of gray in between. So just remember, behind every news headline are words that were never said, some relationships that were cut short, some relationships that never were, and empty spaces that murdered loved ones used to fill. All right, well, big, big thank you to Carolyn Murnick for being our first degree connection. She was wonderful. Um, Read the hot one. Read the hot one. I read the hot one. I gave the hot one to Jack. I, she read the hot one. She I loved it. Yep. You can also read it on audiobook, my new favorite thing. And if you guys have a first degree connection, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Bannock. Join our super secret Facebook group and remember to leave, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. We are picking a winner every week to win some first degree merch. And don't forget to stick around for killing time. That's right. But until then, remember, only you can prevent serial killing and keep your friends close. But, but not, not that close. close. Happy Nachos Day. <laughs> saxophone Day. Happy Nachos Saxophone and Moon Without a Compass Day. Don't even know what that means. I was too embarrassed to admit that earlier. Sources for today's episode include Carolyn's book, The Hot One, Court Documents, 
48 Hours, The LA Times, LA Weekly, CBS Chicago. But as always, our first degree interview is always our biggest source. Welcome to the killing time. <laughs> it's still not, I don't think that I don't think our mic's working. No, no. no. I think that. Welcome it's, to the killing time. No, I think it is no. killing time. Mm. Let's kill some time. Billy is going to lead this episode of Killing Time. I am. And while we were looking for questions to ask each other, I thought of the questions from inside the actor's studio, of course, from Marcel Proust. Love it. Uh, which James Lipton would take out. And um, I want to ask you, what is your favorite word? Mm, okay. Do you know yours? Yeah. Go. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. That's a good one. Um, I like <laughs> I like the word bunting. Bunting. <laughs> bunting and pontiff. I like pontificate. No, just pontiff. Like oh. a, a pontiff. Ooh. Um, I also I also like the word Appaloosa. Appaloosa. That's a cool word. It's a horse. Okay. I don't. I always pronounce this word okay, this wrong was just one word well i have a couple okay. those are like my fun like those words kind of yes. make me feel make me feel good how do you pronounce you say yours and then i'm going to show you mine and then you pronounce mine <laughs> my, oh, other my words yeah um i like the word revenge oh it's a good word it's yeah. like it, the aesthetic revenge, of it yeah revenge. it's just i'm not necessarily a punishment's pretty good too person but yes punishment is a nice one it is okay my other one yeah, you guys are sick. <laughs> <laughs> my other word that I like is phantasmagoria. Yes, that's a Ooh. good one. That's my one that I actually like the sound of, and it's very pretty. Mm -hmm. The other ones, I just they're just like a fun, like happy word. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. okay. One of my favorite words, though, the meaning grandiloquent, which is uh, the use of words you don't really fucking understand. But you use grandiloquent. Big, yeah. Grandiloquent is if you use big words to try to sound smart. Oh, but you don't really use them properly. Yeah. And Which you, is an amazing word to describe that. Yeah. And you grandiloquent. You're pretty grandiloquent. You don't really know what you're talking yeah. about. No. You're and just it's throwing really it's big It's like words. you have word of the day toilet paper and then you're th using them to sound smarter and to sound more educated than you are. Grandiloquent. I actually really like that. It's a okay. great word. What is your least favorite word? I have a series of least favorite words. I have one off the top of my head. Okay. I'm going to say mine first. Okay. My series. It's a phrase. Okay. Three of my least favorite words in succession. Moist, crusty, panties. Right. <laughs> That's not unique. That they're disgusting words. Swamp. Swamp ass. Just swamp. Swamp ass. Absolutely. Swamp alone is still disgusting. I don't mind swamp. I don't mind swamp. I mean, swamp, it says, it sounds like it, like it swamp. is. I like I mean, a swamp. Swamp. Good for you too. Yeah. Go live in a house together with a swamp. <laughs> well, my favorite, my least favorite word is bunting. So it's, it's isn't that interesting? <laughs> no, what I think my real least favorite word is probably. I love a bun, like a baby bunting. So cute. Shrill. Mm. Shrill sounds how the sound is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not quite an onomatopoeia because that's not true, but it's, yeah. it's, it, it uh, mirrors what shrill yeah. is. Next question. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, oh, God. or emotionally? Alcohol. Same. 
like when I'm writing or when I'm doing these our research, it's like I need a glass of wine. I need some soft music or the sweet, sweet sound of Dateline in the background. And then I can just fucking churn this shit right out. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much the same. Like a nice glass of wine. I like an ambiance. Alexis Candles. and I are completely different in this. Well, I like to be at a pool. I know. Something. I like to be somewhere like I like I like a whole setting when I'm trying to work but then I'm in my own little world like I'll have my ear airpods on I'll have my glass of wine but I want to be around people and around movement and around energy she always says she's like let's get some more work I'm like I won't get anything done I yeah. won't I need I need a little more focus but yeah. not so much focus that like Keith Morrison's voice isn't in the background because <sighs> I need that I hear you yeah god no, for, for me I think it's more if I see good writing that that turns me on creatively because it just pushes me yeah to do something better, who, better than i'm doing who is your favorite writer of all time fiction probably like raymond carver yeah he's right i'll give you a book okay yeah and um uh non-fiction i don't know Nonfiction's kind of hit or miss you know what i mean i read so much non-fiction i really wish i i um i didn't but it's just, you do it for work. So it is what it is. What turns you off? Mm, just in general? Yeah. Bad grammar. Overspeaking. Uh, talking at you. Overspeaking is one of my... Le- when I have uh, left eye contact with you <laughs> in your story, where it's supposed to be the finale... The climax has come. It's gone. I've said, oh my God, that's crazy. I'm so sorry. Once I, my eyes wander away, I'm maxed the fuck out. And sometimes, whether it's work, whether it's this, if I go to say something, people just keep talking. My back will be to them and they'll keep talking. And uh, that makes me loathe you. I, <laughs> I don't understand how people do that because I feel like I'm the opposite. Like if somebody even moves eye contact for a second when i'm talking i'm like well i guess they don't care anymore i just, will assu- stop forever. I just assume no one's interested in what i'm saying well nobody is interested in most things anybody says right so i yeah. just it's for the things i say are for me and i just don't plan on people being intrigued besides you find pockets of people who care like you guys care because we're our agendas are aligned but generally nobody cares about anything zero percent it's like telling somebody your dream Oh, that okay. By the way, th- I need to go back because we had our pet or what's gr- what grinds my gears. Then my number one thing, my number one pet peeve in life is when people tell me about their dreams. People always fucking do it, and it's always the same disjointed thing that makes no sense to the person you're telling it to. Yet people love to continue to do it. I'd never do it. I don't understand. I'd never do it. I've done it, but it's been vague. I've been like, hey, Jack, I had this dream about. Having sex with this person. That's fine. Because it's like, does it mean something? Yeah. But I'll never be like, you so were there, but there was a were... baguette that had fucking Jack Nicholson's face on it. Yeah. And then I went down a staircase that looked like a fucking... But it's not... It's The thing that bugs me about people's dreams, it's not the random shit. It's always how you get from start to finish because yeah. they never make sense. And you're like, and then you were there. And then... but. But then we're like in the eighties <laughs> and then like somehow my, my dad would like, and then it's just like, shut the fuck up. None yeah. of this makes sense. I'm sure you're trying to like somehow make it, have it make sense to you in your own mind by explaining yeah. it to me. I don't care. Right. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. 
Uh, there's a difference between my favorite and the most used. Mm-hmm. It's also contingent upon a uh, time period. Because if I can use one from the olden days, that's my favorite. It would be strumpet is probably my favorite one. <laughs> Do you know what that is? No. Slut. Yeah. But like back in the day. Yeah. Mm. You strumpet. It's like a carpetbagger, a scallywag. I like like floozy for the same way. Strumpet is great. Uh, most used is fuck. Yeah. Fuck is just so universal. That's not a curse word. It is now. It is. When we get it into Webster's. Yeah. How do you? I wonder if you can apply for a Webster's. No, what, you don't apply. They oh. just <laughs> they just decide it's a word. They decide it's a word. So selfie it. is now yeah. in the dictionary because it it's yeah. just a thing. Said pe- too many people are using it. Is your favorite word fuck too? Motherfucker, probably. Really? You want to fuck people's mothers? That's exactly right. Interesting. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Jensen. What sound? Stealing your mom's <laughs> and stealing your daughters <laughs> too. Watch. Watch your. Hide Watch your, your moms. No, hide your, hide, hide oh, your moms. Hide your daughters. Hide guy. your nieces. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? I love mm. rain. Rain's a good one. I love. I, I love like the rustling of trees in the yeah, wind. That's my favorite. Anything we nature is very nice. Ocean waves. Waves. Yeah, ocean waves. That's the best. Yeah, I, I would say the rustling of the leaves in the in the wind. I love that. That's like a good big Long Island fall. Yeah. When there's like you have one window open and lots of blankets on and a cool breeze just blows in your room. Yeah, that's the one thing I, I like that out here. A so nice. crackling of a fire. I love is a that. Very good noise. I love the crackling of a fire. A pouring of a drink is a good noise. Well, I was trying to make this stick for us, like the jingle jangling of ice cubes in a glass. I like that. It's a really comforting sound. It really is because you know the alcohol is coming. It is Mama's near. getting her medicine. The medicine, the medicine is coming. <laughs> That'll be another tagline. Mama needs her medicine. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? Whistling. Yeah. You hate whistling? Yeah, whistling. We've, yeah, discussed, we've, we've discussed the whistling. Oh, we did? I hate whistling and I hate... Um, you guys go. That's I hate a baby one. crying. Oh, Yeah. I hate... Ki- <laughs> I any hate, any hate, noise coming out of a child? Yeah, yeah me too. Any, any time I have to, I don't want to hear... Uh, I, I, noise pollution is probably like my, my, the biggest thing that I hate. So having to hear someone shitty music, shitty music. Yeah. When I'm like in my apartment and then I hear somebody playing their <laughs> shitty music. That's why I like having a house too. Cause it's like, I don't hear any of that. Any of, any of your neighbors. Yeah. Bullshit? I have a house. I have an apartment. I'm the Jensen. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like hey, hearing it random. Comes, it comes with age. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is 50 years age old. Age and hard work. <laughs> I have a house. Uh, I have a bar. I, I have, have a, this. Yes. Sorry, Whatever, Billy. Or, did we kill enough time for today? I think we did. The killing time is over. The killing time has been killed. Uh, there's no. There's three more we questions. Do, we can do them next week. All right, we're gonna do Ask these the three questions. questions. I don't no, know. No, no. I think we need more. I mean, we're only we're not. Yeah. These Ask are, one yeah, more. Okay. Ask one more. All right. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Detective. Same. Pi. Profiler. That's almost. I mean, Leslie not, D'Ambrosia and I had like the most intense talk, and she was working. Pro, she was working on the original Night Stalker stuff. She was a FBI profiler, mm-hmm. and she was like, "You should do it. Like, I'll help you." And I was like, "Should I? Should I do it? Should I leave it all behind?" <laughs> and then I was like, practical about it, and I was yeah, like, no. "No." But maybe once this blows up to where I can quit my other you stuff, be I a can celebrity profile. That's right. The, pro, the profiler <laughs> to the stars. I'll profile my friends' boyfriends. 
Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. Right? That should be its own profession. You don't, honestly, all you need is just a degree. You Like they yeah, train yeah. you. You don't need like a doctors or masters. Yeah. You just need kind of an N. Leslie, I'm going to hit you up in a couple of years. What would you want to do, Billy? What about, what about a profession a that is a what? A shepherd. A shepherd? You make me sick. What? Oh, wow. What? <laughs> shot. <laughs> what about a profession that's completely out? Marine of- biologist. Okay. <laughs> Because I used to want Thank to. Thank you. Because you're George Costanza. <laughs> no, he wanted to be an architect. Didn't he want to be a marine biologist? He wanted too? to be an architect. He was faking to be a marine biologist for that one that date one for girl. that one okay. woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, architects. And then he saved the Art uh, Vandelay. Art Vandelay was. And then he was uh, doing latex production. Yeah, well, he was an import export. Import, too. yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did he right. import? Chips. <laughs> mag- match in boxes and match- long matches. He imported <laughs> chips and exported matches. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, no, I wanted to be a dolphin trainer before I knew that was inhumane yeah. when I was younger. So it is. It's terrible, but I didn't know. I was a kid. So I'd want to be a marine biologist and just test algae. Oh, that's nice. Mm. You do that as a hobby. I think so. No, that would be my job. Oh, okay. That's my alt, alt career. That's, per- that's only a hobby that you can have when you retire. You have to be rich to be doing that as a hobby. Absolutely. Yeah. What profession? What about you, Jack? What? I mean, see, like the detective, like PI is outside of my um, career. So right. I feel like that makes That's, more sense. Yeah, that works yeah. for you. But you're really good at that stuff too. My, my mom is very good at it. You and May could do like mother, daughter, mother and daughter, Vanek, Vanek and daughters, Vanek and you know, it's usually like Vanek and sons. Oh yeah. Vanek and gals and me and you will be on it. Vanek and daughter and friend. Vanek and gals. I like Vanek and gals. We'll be trademarking that soon. You can hire us for any PI needs. That's where we do profiling of the boyfriends, Alexis. Yes. It's because it's not, it's not real detective work, but it's detective work that every gal needs. Mm-hmm. We can profile the guy that you're dating. Me? What? No, just in general. Like look him up on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 What profession would you not like to do? Ooh. There's so many. Uh, pretty much all of them. Um, you go first, Billy. Yeah. You know, uh, my dad would always be like, at least I'm not a roofer because the roofers dangerous can, well, it's not like I mean, we were up and down on ladders all the time, painting houses, but there was never a shady spot, you know, cause we would oh. always, we would always work on, okay, the sun's going to be over here. We'll paint this side of the house first. That's how you go around the house. And he would always be like, at least we're not roofers. So yeah. that's how I always think. When roofers I think are probably very wrinkly. Yeah. I think the worst job would be the DMV. <gasps> Everybody's pissed to be there yeah so no one's being their razzle dazzle kind self uh we need we i love you guys at the dmv i'm so grateful i'm sorry more people aren't nicer so the experience isn't better but i don't want your job for my life dmv people okay um i don't think i would like to work in politics i was gonna go there <laughs> but i didn't i was i was gonna not go there until i couldn't think of another answer this is the final question. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? So I don't know what God would say, but all of the angels in heaven would just be a bunch of special needs French bulldogs. I'd like him to rap forgot about Dre to me. <laughs> it's good. Nowadays, everybody want to talk like got something to say. Nothing. You know, Jared, if you were here, you'd get it. This is the sh- song me and Jerry did for karaoke. <laughs> I, we, everybody knows what that song is. All right. Well, that's what I'd want. That's a good one. That's how I'd know I'm home. Could, what would God say to you? Uh, 
That's showbiz, baby. Yeah. <laughs> You'd say, all right, you did pretty good. You know, probably <laughs> your dad's over there. Go watch a game. Or him. would he be like, yeah. you're downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong floor. <laughs> Basement. Ooh, yeah, just sort of, ooh. Ooh. I hate yeah. to be the one to tell you this, but. Who did that? Yeah, that must have been a mix up, but. Mix up. Yeah. Remix. Right. Do you guys watch The Good Place? Yes. Yeah. It's such a good show. Just it's remind me of that. Yeah. yeah. Yogurt. We killed some time. Well, we killed some time. That's showbiz, Bitches. Baby. Killing the time in showbiz, baby. That's showbiz, baby. That's showbiz, baby. Yeah. We're still figuring that out.